My kickoff point is something which um, I've just received uh, in connection with my work for circulation to students, which is the Times Law Awards 2022 essay competition. And the student, the question for this year's Times Law Awards student essay competition sponsored by One Essex Court is, to no quote, to no one will we sell, to no one will we deny or delay right or justice, Magna Carta Clause 40. Title, is the state financing the criminal justice system properly? And if not, is privatization a possible solution? Would this mean selling justice? Uh, <coughs> The point I think is uh, it should be uh, a, a reasonable illustration of a point which I made um, in my most recent article in the series, which is that the ancient constitution, the idea of the British ancient constitution is alive and well uh, in the 21st century, well, perhaps not quite as well as it might be, but is uh, unambiguous, alive and kicking in the 21st century. And uh, uh, it is still the case that people argue about uh, the uh, rules of Magna Carta and indeed argue about the Norman Conquest and uh, the Treaty of Ligulae and uh, the uh, uh, surrender of uh, England to the papacy by uh, King John and uh, all the other stuff of this sort is uh, still uh, live politics and indeed uh, the question of whether the royal whether Britain could be pulled out of Europe by the royal prerogative without there being an act of parliament and so on and so on and so on this is uh, live stuff uh, second observation is one which is um, uh, absolutely uh, immediate politics very immediate politics um, the Owen Patterson story. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, this guy got busted by the uh, Parliamentary Standards Commissioner for uh, lobbying for money on, as, in his capacity as an MP. And uh, Boris Johnson's initial view, the, view, the initial view, well, not, particularly not just of Boris Johnson, but of his government, uh, the initial view of the government was that uh, this, this was a bad idea and that they wanted to uh, overthrow Patterson's, both Patterson's um, condemnation by the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner and indeed the whole Parliamentary Standards Regime. They want to create a new Parliamentary Standards Regime. Uh, and seeing as the Tory party uh, uh, has a large majority holding 360 out of 650 seats in Parliament, even the, the existence of a substantial Tory rebellion in the House of Commons uh, didn't prevent the uh, 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 proposal going through. But within two days, uh, Boris Johnson did a U-turn. And he did a U-turn essentially uh, because the media uh, didn't like, let's call it, let's put it as simply as this, the media didn't like the idea of the Tories abolishing the uh, uh, current regime of uh, controlling MP sleaze. And indeed, what's happened has not just been that uh, Boris Johnson has done a U-turn, but that the Tory sleaze story has become one which has run for the last fortnight uh, and uh, um, 
is uh, giving rise to considerable embarrassment in the uh, uh, of, of, of the government and indeed to uh, sudden reversal in the polls that their lead over the Labour Party in the polls has gone away. Um, U-turn is not by any means the only U-turn uh, which the government has executed. Um, uh, planning law, one of the things which is uh, regarded as being actually quite fundamental that uh, Britain has got a, a serious housing problem. And uh, the Tories' solution to this serious housing problem is to do a radical overhaul of planning law in order to uh, enable building new houses. It's actually unlikely that this will work, do the job that it's uh, uh, supposed to do, because um, the underlying problem is that the builders don't want to build on brownfield sites and don't want to build houses for the poor. Um, and uh, <coughs> in consequence, actually, how much you liberalise the planning laws, all that liberalising the planning laws is going to do is produce more production of uh, 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 High high value houses on uh, greenfield sites access, suitable only for commuters to the city. Um, so, uh, nonetheless, uh, that was the only policy which they had. The uh, idea of the alternative, which would be to abolish council house sales and set free the councils to build new council housing, uh, uh, would uh, is unthinkable is not only unthinkable to the Tory party, but it's also unthinkable to the Labour Party. And in consequence, on the housing question, uh, Parliament society, the, the political process is gridlocked. It's impossible to reach conclusion, uh, to do anything of substance about the housing question. We can see in point of fact, the same thing at work um, in relation to HS2. Now people have can have uh, wildly differing views of the merits or otherwise of HS2, the HS2 high-speed line from London to Birmingham. And to be honest, I think the uh, negatives have a, have a good deal on their side. But the reality of the matter is, again, that governments uh, with clear majorities, mm, uh, whether it's the coalition government or uh, the Tory the present Tory government, have been unable to uh, force through uh, any anything beyond the London to Birmingham stage of HS2. The political process is gridlocked as far as uh, internal affairs is concerned. But this gridlocking of the political process has got nothing to do with uh, the uh, theoretical legal position in the Constitution. The theoretical legal position is the Queen, when she acts in Parliament, is sovereign. Uh, she's not sovereign outside of acting in Parliament, but when she acts in Parliament by the assent of the Lords and Commons, House of Lords and the House of Commons, she is sovereign. And therefore, a, a government which has a clear parliamentary majority ought to be able to overcome uh, obstacles to bulldoze its way through to create uh, 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 decisive decision-making. It isn't able to do so. Mm -hmm. The gridlock is coming from political processes, uh, not from uh, juridical processes. Conversely, the United States uh, 
the, the where we started from with this discussion is that the United States Constitution is gridlocked. Um, and that's very much clear. It's quite, it, 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 we've got uh, Biden unable to deliver anything more than a fairly minimalist uh, uh, infrastructure reform. Okay, it's a lot of money. It's a big bung to the construction firms. Uh, but uh, in terms of uh, what his constituents, his, his, his supporters voted for, this is, this is not very serious. And he's unable to do that in essence because uh, 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 the Democratic Party is split because the uh, bribe payers to the Democrats uh, have people who they will back them in blocking um, uh, major change in any set, which is in any sense in the interests of the working class. And uh, the Republican Party, on the other hand, is solid. And by virtue of the uh, constitutional structure of the United States, uh, the um, rural classes control the Senate. Mm -hmm. And uh, from that point of view, the uh, the, the the ability of uh, any democratic administration to do anything of any substance other than good favors to high-paying tax, high-rate taxpayers, uh, is uh, extremely limited. Okay, but nonetheless, uh, is this the case that uh, the um, US uh, Congress and administrations are gridlocked on everything. No. Mm -hmm. uh, it, the, uh, the reality is that the uh, uh, US con Congress and the administrations are not gridlocked on any issue of foreign policy. In spite of the rhetoric, changes in rhetoric between the Trump Obama administration, the Trump administration and the Biden administration. There is continuity through these three administrations uh, in relation to um, uh, the uh, 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 policy of pivot to Asia, meaning uh, a policy of developing encirclement and increasingly aggressive encirclement of China uh, in relation equally uh, to the policy of defense of the Ukraine and the uh, 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 efforts to get the Europeans on side with uh, a shooting war in Eastern Ukraine um, in relation to uh, um, uh, sanctions on Iran. It turned out that there was very limited movement by the Obama administration and uh, um, while there was radical sharp movement by the Trump administration, the uh, Biden administration has not significantly rode back, but has continued to um, uh, 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 demand from the uh, Iranian government that it make more concessions than those which were made for the uh, nuclear deal under Obama. Uh, so the the. The reality is uh, the US, uh, the, the, the structure of US politics is characterized by bipartisanship on uh, international and military affairs. Mm -hmm. And the gridlock which exists is only a gridlock, is not a gridlock against uh, tax cuts for the rich. It's only a gridlock against uh, uh, welfare measures for the poor. It's only a gridlock against measures which would reduce um, uh, uh, the um, uh, uh, 
gerrymandering and so on and so on and so on. And uh, as uh, Ben Cosin has just said in the chat, this is, of course, equally true of UK politics, that what appears as gridlock in UK politics is principally gridlock against anything which moves against uh, the interests of uh, the city and of uh, uh, donors to uh, the Conservative Party. Okay, so what we're talking about then, what we started talking about, what the, the, the whole series of articles and the debate has been about is about the question, is the phenomenon of gridlock on domestic politics in the United States a product of the antiquity of the US Constitution? Conversely, is the, uh, are the various features of British politics a product of the antiquity of the British Constitution, which on any terms is a great deal more antique uh, than the US Constitution with its uh, monarchy, established church, um, matters being done by the royal prerogative, um, a House of Lords, okay, the House of Lords is now a nominated, uh, primarily a nominated body, but it still includes the bishops and it still includes a significant chunk of uh, hereditary peers, uh, and so on and so on and so on. And um, in a sense, I okay, that's my, at one level, that's my end of story story, but I don't want to stop at the end of story story I think it's more interesting and significant uh, to think more generally about what is a constitution, about why it is necessary uh, for rising classes uh, to overthrow the pre-existing constitution in order to develop the new social order of which they are bearers. Mm. Uh, of uh, the relationship between the rise of capitalism and the feudal constitutions, and therefore why we have uh, this uh, strange ideology in England of the ancient constitution. Yeah. And uh, further about capitalist constitutions and why all capitalist constitutions are engines of minority rule, even though they hold themselves out as being, quote, democracies, unquote, that's got nothing to do with, well, it's, a, it's an ideology um, which has a limited expression in uh, uh, the right to vote every so many years, but whoever you vote for, the government will get in, as the anarchists rightly say. Um, okay, so, um, I start then with uh, what's a constitution. And I think that a constitution basically has two sides to it. And the first side is that it's a set of rules and practices of decision-making. Now that set of rules and practices of decision-making is characteristically of a state, but we can perfectly well talk about a part, the constitution of a party or the constitution of a, um, a, 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 a private society or a church or a bowls club or whatever the hell it is. Um, the rules and practices, it's important to be clear, are not all legal rules. Now, I want to be 
pin down two aspects of this. The first is if something, the mere fact that something is written down in a statute doesn't make it a legal rule. Legal rules are rules which are justiciable, which a court is willing to enforce uh, if they are understood to be infringed or uh, broken. Now, they, legal rules, therefore, don't have to be statutory, and indeed, an awful lot of uh, both English law and American law is non-statutory, uh, quote, common law, uh, precedent, doctrine, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, conversely, however, there are rules contained in statute uh, which are not enforceable in any court. And to the extent that they're contained in statute but not enforceable by any court, uh, it's probably best to regard them as ideological statements by government, uh, representations by government about how government will act. Um, I, I, the clearest example, just the clearest English example of this is the Education Act 1944, which contains a whole load of uh, provisions about councils providing public schools, about the organization of state schools, about the organization of state schools, uh, about uh, this, the regulation government of state schools, etc, etc, etc. And one, only one uh, justiciable clause, the one justiciable clause is one which actually isn't enforced, which is that every school must have uh, an act of Christian worship uh, every morning. Uh, in practice, uh, most schools uh, dodge around this by holding uh, more or less uh, fuzzy ethics assembly of one sort or another. But the statutory rule, which is enforceable, is just that. Uh, we've got actually similar things in the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States says that the right to declare war is vested in the Congress, bang, in the Congress. Now, on the straight originalist understanding of what that meant, um, i.e. What, what, what the guys who were drafted this text meant in the late 1700s, it's pretty clear that they meant that the uh, USA was not entitled to engage in military operations on its own initiative outside of the United States uh, without uh, congressional approval. It's not that the president couldn't engage in military operations in defense of the United States in the case the country was invaded, as it was uh, the last country to invade the United States was the UK in 1812. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, that's no, no problem, but uh, taking aggressive military action without a declaration of war was uh, understood in the uh, international law of the period to be merely piracy or armed robbery and not with, without the declaration of war, uh, it was just an ordinary crime enforceable and not protected by any act of state doctrine or any of that stuff, okay? But as far as the US Supreme Court is concerned, uh, this provision is not justiciable. It's not justiciable because uh, it can't give rise to a quote cause or controversy between private individuals. Nobody can suffer any loss who has any standing to sue in the courts of the United States because the guys who the United 
president of the United States drops bombs on uh, as a result of unauthorized military operations overseas don't have standing to sue in the courts of the United States, because as far as they're concerned, what the United States has done is acts of state. And conversely, if even if the congressional actors uh, say that uh, they want to say to litigate the question of uh, the war powers under the Congress, the Supreme Court will not accept such a suit because it doesn't represent a cause or controversy because the members of Congress lose nothing by virtue of the president's action. And in consequence, it wasn't the case before the Second World War, but since the Second World War, uh, it has been the routine practice of uh, uh, the US presidency to go to war without the consent of the Congress. And indeed, there's a whole raft of other stuff. We've got litigation now going on about Trump's assertion of executive privilege for his uh, uh, um, discussions about how to make a coup d'etat in uh, or alleged discussions about how to make a coup d'etat in uh, the run up to um, uh, uh, in, in, in the around the time of the presidential election and the attempted invasion of Capitol Hill and all of that stuff. Uh -huh. uh, this claim of executive privilege is um, based on uh, the English royal prerogative privilege um uh, 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 <clears throat> which we got rid of um well not we got rid of but we changed the rules for uh this uh, it's now called public interest immunity uh in the 1960s 1970s the courts uh, in this country changed the rules but it's originally a royal prerogative and uh, the claim that there's a royal prerogative uh to keep information from parliament which is essentially what's being claimed in relation to the congressional subpoenas and executive privilege in the United States is not a claim which was made even by Charles I. Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth would have made that claim. In fact, she was thrown the MPs who wanted to question what she was doing into jail pending. That's, that's, that's the way in which she or her father, for that matter, uh, ran the show. But uh, in this case, this is not something, again, there is a, a process whereby because there is the causal controversy rule understood in the um, US Supreme Court has the effect that there's a gradual accretion of power to the executive. Um, and that gradual accretion of power to the executive also reflects more generally the role of the quote imperial presidency um as the united states has become bigger and bigger and bigger as an imperialist power okay so these rules then the rule that you can't uh litigate is a customary rule what's called in england a convention of the constitution and it's a customary rule which overrules the statutory rule mm -hmm. Um, so constitutions then are uh, rules and practices of decision making, which may be legal rules or may be customary rules, but uh, uh, you, you can't it, it exclude uh, there being customary rules. The second thing which constitutions are is that they're principles of loyalty 
which organized the loyalty of uh, uh, state actors. And we need to organize the loyalty of state actors because other things apart, a state is just a protection racket. Uh, state is just a bunch of guys with guns who point them, or guns, or before that, swords and spears and uh, bows and arrows and stuff like that, who point them at the general public and extract taxes from the general public. Okay, states actually do things which are, to a greater or lesser extent, useful, but uh, they are vulnerable to exactly the same problem as armies, which if, if they have a victory and then they break up in order to loot, the army ceases to be an organized force. And there needs to be some organized principle in the organization of the state, which holds the state officials back from just stealing things. Yeah. Not they do steal things. They're not going to stop stealing things altogether, but it holds them back from stealing things to the point that the whole apparatus collapses. And we can, in fact, see examples. Most recently, the uh, Afghanistan puppet regime, uh, the uh, guys in the state just stole everything. And in consequence, the soldiers didn't get paid and they weren't willing to fight. Uh, but in fact, the same thing happened in the last years of the czarist regime, the extent of corruption in the logistics apparatus of the czarist regime in 1914 to 17 was such uh, that the uh, regime was unable to uh, deliver both food to the city cities and uh, food and munitions to the armed forces, um, which is what triggers 1917. Uh, the white armies uh, in the aftermath of 1917 during the civil war period become very rapidly just gangs of looters. Uh, the same thing happens in the collapse of the um, uh, South Vietnamese regime in uh, 1975. The, the armed forces break up into disorganized gangs of looters. You don't see so much of it because the uh, uh, North Vietnamese uh, army, army comes in and takes over and it, it's not such an obvious collapse. Okay, so we need the two sides of this, one of which has got rules for decision making, and the other side of it is those rules for decision making also serve as an ideology uh, which holds uh, the uh, state officials back from looting. Now, the ideology which holds the state officials back from looting has the consequence uh, that the state officials are loyal to the principles which are expressed in the constitutional conception. And those principles which are expressed in the constitutional conception are the, are the, are the ideas of the, are part, part of the ideas of the ruling class. So the feudal state is characterized, um, feudalism is characterized by the split of the exploiting class between the military nobility on the one hand and the clergy on the other hand, yeah. uh, with going along with that, the ability of the primary producers to maneuver between the local parson or abbot and the local uh, squire or um, daimyo. Yeah. Um, with the result that there is uh, substantial 
uh, growth in the forces of production arising from the ability of uh, the primary producers to reinvest, which doesn't exist in the um, uh, in the classical antiquities. The classical antiquity it has to be reinvestment has to be from the members of the ruling class. Okay. Um, but how do we understand, because we don't understand the, the villains as being outside of society, how do we understand the right to rule? And the answer is the right to rule is given by the personal inherited characteristics of the knight, the gentleman, the uh, baron, the prince, but also, on the other hand, is given by the personal sanctity of the um, uh, clergyman. But the consequence of this dependence on the personality of the ruler, the personality of the clergyman, is against the interests of the development of proto-capitalism. The reason being capitalism involves money put into commodities. The commodities are then worked up through a production process involving uh, collective activity by groups of workers, wage workers. The produced commodity, C dash, then has to be sold off and realized as M dash with a profit at the end of it. And the problem with uh, the um, feudal state is that uh, it's all too easy uh, for uh, the um, uh, uh, personal character of the monarch or the personal character of a bishop or whatever to interfere with the process. I gave him one of the examples of the articles, the example of Andrew Garrington. Um, he and his partners put a lot of money and in, invested a lot of money into working out tin plating and getting buying the tin plating process from the uh, invent, prior inventors in Saxony only to discover after, when they were ready to go to market that King Charles II had privately given a patent for tin plating to a mate of his. And King Charles II's mate having personal access to the king, he knocks Yarrington and his partners out of the picture. But we can see equally uh, in um, uh, uh, Renaissance Florence, um, uh, Savonarola uh, gets up a, and the, he's just one of uh, many, many examples of people in the Middle Ages, gets up a, uh, an agitation against the currently constituted authorities on the basis that they're tolerating usury and exploitation and uh, stuff which is inconsistent with Christian law. Now, the point is not that Christian law prohibits profit. The point is that Christian law can be read as prohibiting profit and somebody can get themselves up as a holy man, a sacred man, by arbitrarily interfering with uh, uh, the circulation of capital. So that the capitalists need a, uh, a new state form, which isn't a state form based on the government of men whether it's the government of uh, princes because of their natural nobility, shown even in the most difficult circumstances, the lost prince who uh, 
is brought up as a peasant and then uh, 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 pulls the sword out of the stone or uh, otherwise is discovered to be the true prince. There's endless medieval stories along this line, nor in relation to the saint who uh, gets up a um, agitation for a crusade or for a, uh, a, a, a suppression of usury or whatever, etc., etc., etc. The capitalist state needs uh, to be a, quote, rule of law state. Yeah. And that's already the case in the uh, medieval Italian city-states. The first way in which they start thinking about being a rule of law state and the prince being subject to the law is to say that they're Rome uh, and to say that they're subject to Roman law. Um, and Pisa in the 1160s is already saying, Pisa has for many years lived subject to Roman law. It's easier for them to say this because they are the guys who had uh, the sixth uh, century manuscript copy of the digest of the Emperor Justinian written in the sixth century uh, in their hands. So they, they, they had a more easy access to Roman law sources than some other people. Um, but it was very, it's a very widespread thing. We appeal to Rome, we are the ancient, the heirs of the ancient republic. And this is not uh, by any means unique. Uh, Marx wrote in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte about how the French Revolution is dressed in the clothes of ancient Rome. They weren't by any means the first people to do so. One of the most popular plays of uh, the reign of Queen Anne was a play called Lucius Junius Brutus which is about the foundation of the Roman Republic. It's a Whig play about the foundation of the Roman Republic. Um, uh, the uh, guys in the political opposition in the 1720s wrote a series of letters called Cato's under the title Cato's Letters, again, appealing to the Roman Republic as their background. Uh, the American revolutionary similarly appealed to the Roman Republic. So the, this appeal to Rome is, is, is uh, a common thing. There is a problem with it, it's a poison chalice. Uh, and the reason why it's a poison chalice is because uh, actually you say we appeal to ancient Rome, but the Roman law sources that we have are actually sources from the Emperor Justinian, who was a Christian emperor in the sixth century AD. And the sources have precisely the idea that uh, the will of the prince, the will of the, the emperor is the force of law, uh, that the emperor is not bound by the laws. And they also actually have uh, explicit provision for the jurisdiction of bishops over uh, issues and usury and all of this stuff. It's all there in the Justinianic uh, sources. Later on, it came to be the case that people started to say, oh, well, we don't want that Justinianic law. Uh, we want uh, Roman law as it was in Republican times. So Francois Hotman, uh, French, I'll put it up in the chat in a minute, but not now, uh, wrote a book called Anti-Tribonian, which appealed against Tribonian, who wrote Justinian's codification, chaired the codification commission uh, to older law. Um, uh, uh, in the 19th century, guys, uh, uh, argued about the law of business Rome, meaning uh, Rome of uh, the uh, Republican and early imperial period. So that 
but nonetheless, the problem, it's a poison chalice. And the people who succeeded in creating independent states are the Genoese and the Venetians who didn't follow the Roman law is our rule line, but instead says we have ancient constitutions which go back to immemorial antiquity. Um, and these ancient constitutions which go back to immemorial antiquity make us autonomous. The Venetians did it the biggest possible scale. Uh, they set up somebody called the Patriarch of Venice, who is supposed to rank equally with the Pope. So of course he's subordinate to the Senate and, uh, Senate and Council of, uh, uh, of the Venetian Republic. Mm. Um, and the same happens in relation to uh, 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 the Netherlands and, and Britain, that we have the development of the idea of an ancient constitution, which is so ancient and so powerful that it holds the king in subordination. And therefore it holds all the magistrates in subordination, that it's a, an immemorial, a constitution which goes back to time immemorial um, and some really weird uh, history stuff. Um, uh, things which were said to be before the Roman conquest of Batavia, uh, the Netherlands, or before the Romans came to Britain, stuff like that. Um, the ancient constitution is a, is, is a device to allow you to have a rule of law state. The ancient constitutionalist line is run actually not just by the British, the, the, the English, I should say, and the, um, the Netherlanders and the Italian city-states. It's attempted by, I re just referred to Francois Hopman, the Protestant revolutionaries in France, but they lost. Uh, instead, uh, the French uh, state uh, developed uh, as an absolute sovereign state. L'état, c'est moi, says Louis XIV. The state is me. Uh, uh, and the uh, ancient constitutionalist guys wound up as uh, emigres uh, operating in the Netherlands and in London, um, where they played a significant role in the... Uh, capitalist uh, communities. Um, similarly, uh, ancient constitutionalist arguments were run in Germany in very different circumstance in Germany, because in Germany, what happens is that the uh, equivalence in Germany of the Duke of this and the Earl of that and the Bishop of the other uh, become sovereign princes. And they too adopt the uh, indivisible sovereignty uh, and the sovereignty is in me, the King of Prussia, or in me, the Prince of Bavaria, or in me, uh, uh, the um, uh, Elector of Hanover, uh, or the Bishop of Archbishop of Cologne, as the case may be, these various different uh, characters. Um, Now, what happens then is these are experiments which allow you to have a, a rule of law state. The result of the geopolitics of the creation of the rule of law state in the Netherlands and in England 
is that by the early 1700s, everybody's thinking, or well, not everybody, but all the sort of guys who would quite like to have something better than uh, the uh, uh, feudal slash religious regime are thinking, we want some of that. And they aren't thinking it, however, as this is our ancient constitution. This is the Neapolitan, the ancient constitution of Naples, for example. Rather, they're thinking the English, the, the Dutch and the English have shown that there is progress, that the world moves forward, that things get better. And this progress is leading towards enlightenment. And the enlightenment then means we can redesign our constitution to make an enlightened constitution, one which is the product not of an a, a, a remote and hoary antiquity, uh, but of uh, uh, redesign. Now, the redesign is characteristically involves rule of law, and it involves rule of law. The form of it involving rule of law is that you write the constitution down as if it was a statute or the constitution of a, a town or a club or a, whatever it college or whatever it might be all of these things have had written constitutions since the late middle ages um but enlightenment turns out also to be a poison chalice for the capitalist class the reason why enlightenment is a poison chalice for the capitalist class is that the capitalist constitution Although it needs to be a rule of law constitution, but it also needs to be a regime of minority rule. It has to be a regime of minority rule because the capitalist class is a minority class. Because the capitalism, which produces the great uh, military capabilities, which produces the geopolitical advantage of uh, the Netherlands and uh, Britain over France is precisely the form of production in which we go money, commodity, and then production by organized wage workers, uh, commodity, money. It's the, 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 the unity of the market and the factory. Even if the factory uh, that we're concerned with is not... Um, uh, uh, steam-driven machines, but wind-driven machines, the, the big ships uh, uh, and uh, water-mills, water uh, water-mill-driven machines and uh, the large-scale mining operations, foundries, uh, and so on and so on. Um, so there's a problem with pure enlightenment which is that it's not finding a sufficient reflection for the authority relations. There's the two sides of capitalism. On the one side, it's uh, freedom and equality in the market. On the other side, it's uh, sharp hierarchical authority relations in the workplace. Both parts of that are capitalism. It's not that uh, uh, there's a sort of uh, either that the factory is the uh, epitome of modernity, which the guys who were fans of uh, the, the, the German regime, so Parvus and those guys, thought that uh, Germany and Hilferding and co thought Germany had organised capitalism as opposed to the disorganised liberalism of uh, Britain and the United States, and that organised capitalism was the, the, the way of the future. Yeah. That picks up one side. 
on the other side, the Enlightenment policy just picks up the other half, just looks at freedom and equality in the market and forgets about the presence of uh, hierarchy and authority uh, in, 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 in the workplace. Um, and uh, the, uh, <clears throat> hence the, the point that the, uh, that Enlightenment constitutionalism uh, is contradictory from the point of view of capital. It's problematic. On the one hand, its great advantage over ancient constitutionalism is that uh, you're set free from whatever the hell happened hundreds of years ago. You're no longer arguing about uh, the meaning of the Norman conquest or about uh, uh, the Batavians or etc, etc, etc. On the other hand, however, uh, there's also a real danger that Enlightenment ideas lead to the ideas of, hey, if we're, we have enlightened ideas, why should I be subordinate to the foreman on the shop floor or my line manager? Or why should uh, we as uh, small operators of one sort and another be uh, outbribed? Why should it be the case that the uh, uh, big capitalists have uh, priority access to the MPs, which the rest of us don't have? Mm. Um, why might it not be the case, indeed, uh, that uh, there's a future after capitalism? If we accept that there is indeed progress in history, then yeah, there might be a future beyond capitalism. It might, might not be just stop where we are. We might be able to think uh, uh, in terms of uh, Spencean communism or um, Owenite cooperation or... Um, uh, 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 the red republicanism of Helen McFarlane or Marxism for that matter. Yeah. And so capital moves away from uh, straight enlightenment constitutionalism. It's, it's a to and fro process. It's not a, there's no enlightenment constitutionalism doesn't just disappear, uh, but, but capital, capital moves away and in the states the form which this takes is quote originalism unquote mm -hmm. originalism theoretically says we have to interpret the u.s constitution on the basis that what the guys writing in the uh, 1780s meant is the only thing that it the rule what the document means except it turns out uh, that the originalists and uh, this 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 doctrine of originalism emerged actually along with Reaganism and neoliberalism and all the rest of this stuff. This is uh, uh, part of the reaction in the 1980s. But it turned out after uh, 10 or 20 years that the originalists are no longer interested in hearing from historians of the 18th century uh, what the intellectual context of the guys writing in the uh, uh, 1780s was. On the contrary, they have a construct. And this, con this historical construct of modern originalism of Antonin Scalia and uh, all these other guys in the uh, 
US Supreme Court and on the right is a, uh, a, a peculiar image of a sort of rose tinted spectacles image of, uh, of the past, uh, which has indeed very much the same sort of character as Edward Cook's fantasies of the Anglo-Saxon parliament uh, and uh, the uh, common belief of the uh, uh, 17th century guys of the Norman yoke that uh, Norman society, which in fact abolished chattel slavery in when after after the Normans came into England, that chattel slavery disappeared. It had been very widespread and extensive in Anglo-Saxon England. Yeah. This idea that there was freedom in Anglo-Saxon England and the Normans took it away, all of these various aspects of the ancient constitution, which we have equally now, the story of the Lord Chancellor, the office of Lord Chancellor goes back to 604 AD. Excuse me, there wasn't a kingdom of England in 604 AD. Um, all of this sort of fantasy history, uh, the, 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 the uh, originalists are writing fantasy history of the same sort uh, in relation to the United States, but in relation to a much more recent period of time. And it's just as much, it seems to be, I have to say, I think on both sides, almost immune to uh, historical criticism. Um, nonetheless, I'm going to uh, jump out of that. And this is, there was, my point was the, the return of ancient constitutionalism, which I didn't write about in the articles, but I do think is, is, is pertinent. We need to think about uh, what would be the proletarian constitution. We need to think about that uh, because it's a question of what alternative is available to capitalist constitutionalism. Uh, capitalist constitutionalism is about minority rule. The presence of these uh, judicial review institutions and in England, um, although judicial review is weak, the judicial right to interpret statute uh, can be um, such as to wipe out the effect of the statute uh, altogether. Um, dear me. Tiencia against vision enterprises in the early 2000s is about a statute which required that the um, landlord uh, should uh, uh, pay the tenant deposit to an independent stakeholder. And if the landlord didn't pay the tenant deposit to the independent stakeholder, then the landlord was barred from recovering rent. Uh, okay, so then the uh, Court of Appeal by a two to one decision in Tiencia holds that the statute is satisfied if the landlord pays to the independent stakeholder two minutes before judgment is given in the actual litigation to recover the rent. Um, the effect of which is to render the statute completely uh, ineffective. So these are all minority rule. We are concerned with the proletariat as a class uh, as a majority class. I want to be a little, obviously we have to be a little bit cautious about this, but I would say, I think that the proletariat, at least in this country is a majority class. Um, 
I need we need to understand that in order to understand that we have to actually count the kids as part of the proletariat and the, uh, the, the, the most of the people who are unemployed who haven't given up and decided to make a living from petty crime, which is actually a, a form of small business. Um, on the other hand, the small business operators of whom there are about five million uh, aren't part of the proletariat. But then I think if we add this all together, actually, it turns out that the proletariat is the, as a, is a majority class in uh, in uh, Britain. There are largish, substantial um, uh, uh, middle classes and so on. But uh, we can think of the proletariat as a majority class. Further, it needs political democracy in order to organize itself. We can see this, we've, the, 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 both Stalinism and social democracy have tested to destruction the idea that you can have powerful workers' organizations without political democracy. In reality, the destruction of political democracy in the workers' organizations erodes the effectiveness, reduces the trade unions and the Labour Party and things like this to empty shells, uh, which are incapable of actually uh, uh, defeating and resisting the um, uh, attacks of the capitalist class. What is political democracy, however? It's not straightforwardly a, a rules system, or certainly not a legal rules system. Because a legal rules system is precisely a system in which the last word as to what the rules are is held by judges. The rule of law is the dictatorship of the, of the bourgeoisie. And that's just as much true of, quote, socialist legality yeah, as it is of, uh, uh, of, of the conventional rule of law. Political democracy has to be a practice, a customary practice, uh, which returns the decisions as far as possible, that it's a convention, that the decisions go back as, as far as possible to the, uh, to the, to the, to the ranks. I want to be cautious with this. I, Paul Cockshot uh, proposed in a text, I can't remember which I wrote against some years ago, uh, universal online referenda with the uh, right of initiative that anybody has the right to make a proposal. And my response to that is, yeah, I get up in the morning and I open my email and the first thing I find is 25 million referendum proposals to be voted on. Um, uh, the reality is that the decision-making process is not, it requires us to have mechanisms which sift through, which define, which def define and limit the range of choices which we're making and the processes by which we define and limit the choices by which we're making involve uh, political representation, they involve uh, the organization of factions, parties, and so on, and so on. Um, and uh, thinking about political democracy, if we think thoroughly about political democracy, it will become apparent that actually political democracy, in the first place, is necessarily, it's about a customary regime, and it's about principles which shape and guide how we do our decision-making process. Is this a matter which has to be decided right now, bang, bang, or can it go back to the uh, um, larger group? 
and back in turn to the general membership. Yeah. Um, too much of the far left, uh, but it's also the trade union movement as well, just tries to decide things without going back to the general membership on the basis that it's urgent that something should be done. Sometimes it really is urgent that something should be done. If there's a fire, somebody's got to order the fire engines out and so on and so on. Um, but uh, there are a lot of things where it isn't actually that urgent that something should be done. And uh, the issue should go back to uh, the membership. But we need the process of deciding what issues, the process of filtering down the um, however many billion individual people it is in the world down to uh, an actual workable uh, decision process. And thinking about that actually entails us thinking about this, as I say, not as uh, rules of law, not as complex Heath Robinson constitution a la left unity. Uh, we had the experience of this uh, left formation, left unity, had a really complicated constitution which didn't work. Yeah. Uh, but as, uh, uh, as, as political practice and political custom and political principle, uh, and uh, that why, is, why have I raised this in this context is because actually that's essential that we think democracy outside of thinking of the juridical, we think democracy in terms of um, uh, the custom and practice and not in terms of the juridical constitution and not in terms of the judge as saviour from on high to deliver us. That's it. I'm finishing there.